0: Let's hear the word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Father, we open the Bible and we see that if we belong to Christ Jesus, there's no way that we can get out or get away from your love. Not even on our worst days, not even in our worst moments. Those moments when All of our thoughts and actions look like thoughts and actions of someone who doesn't care about Jesus, let alone belong to Jesus. You don't love us any less in our worst moments or any more in our best and most faithful moments of obedience. Your love is full on always. It is the love that comes to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord, crucified for us. Your love demonstrated in real time never to be taken back, never to lose any of its force or strength. The Son has been given, not withheld, but given. The demonstration that we are loved. Securely and eternally loved. So we rest in your love. We're resting here, and we ask you that you would draw us closer in mind, in soul, in our tastes, and in relationship by this great love. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his words. Thank you for his patient leading. Help us learn from him today as we await his glorious appearing. We ask in his holy name. Amen. Well, we get to talk about money today. Who's excited to talk about money? We have arrived at a point in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, where Jesus talks about our relationship with money. So remember, we're not skipping the hard parts. The title of the sermon today is Kingdom Principles for Wealth. Kingdom Principles for Wealth. So kingdom, as in kingdom of God, right? The theme of Luke's gospel. We're making our way through Luke, learning what life in this kingdom is like. If, um, if we were to say it a little bit differently, I would say that we are learning how our lives are to be distinct because we're followers of Jesus, and so we come, when we come to a discussion of money today, like money and the Christian, the question we're really asking is like, how should my use of money be distinct from my neighbors, coworkers, et cetera, people that don't know the Lord? How should my use of money, how should my view of money be distinct from them because I am a follower of Christ? And uh, Jesus is going to tell us. That's what we're going to learn. So, let's read the passage first, then we're going to talk about what it means, okay? So, Luke 16, verses 1 through 13, very beginning of Luke chapter, Luke chapter 16. Most of this um, is a parable. It is a parable that I think is really hard to understand, that I've thought for a long time is hard to understand. In fact, it, it contains um, what... One commentator, probably the um, who I think is the best living commentator on the Gospel of Luke, Daryl Bach, wrote this huge two-volume commentary on Luke. He called one of the verses in this section, Luke 16, 8, he called it the single most difficult verse in the whole Gospel. So that's what we get to look at today. Isn't that exciting? Okay. Let's do it. Let's see if we can make sense out of it. We're going to do the hard work to try to figure out what does this mean so that Jesus' glory and beauty can be reflected in our lives, okay? If you're feeling up to it, if you're able to stand this morning, I want to invite you to do that for the reading of the word. Luke 16, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 13. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management... People may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Amen. All right, please be seated. Well, as we get into this, one preliminary question that we might ask is, why does Jesus talk about something as earthy as money? Like, why does he go there and talk about something that we might just consider an earthy thing, like money, something that's not eternal. You know, Jesus is also, or is often talking about um, relationships. You know, man's relationship with God, man's relationship with fellow man, his own relationship with the Father. Right? Jesus talks about those kind of things. He, he talks about things like sin and repentance a lot. We just spent a long time, three weeks, talking about sin and repentance and forgiveness, talking about the parable of the prodigal son. He's often teaching spiritual principles and addressing the interior life, like pride and lust and anger. Things like worry and humility. And then he starts talking about money. It seems something like outside the spiritual realm. And maybe most of us just wish that he hadn't really addressed this subject. Just kind of left it alone and didn't go there. And I know that probably a lot of people listening are already kind of getting their guard up. Like, start prying into the bank account today. We might want discussion of money to remain a private thing. So why does Jesus address our money? Well, think about what money is. Money is another source of power besides God. Money is another thing that we can love besides God. If we read the very next verse, verse 14, it says the Pharisees, those were the religious leaders in Israel, it says the Pharisees were lovers of money. Money is another thing that we can love beside God. It's another source of power besides God. Money is also another place that we can place our security and look for security besides God. So in in many ways, money is just plain and simple, like a rival to God. Money is something else that we can place our trust in besides God. So why does Jesus talk about money? Well, he's saving us, of course. When Jesus talks to us, and even when he commands, he's always saving us from ourselves, from our natural inclinations. He's saving us from idolatry when he addresses our money. He's saving us from a, a false hope of satisfaction and a false place to put our trust. If his disciples, so he's addressing his disciples here, right, 16.1, he said to the disciples, if they take their view of money from the prominent religious leaders of the day, from the Pharisees, they'll have a wrong view of money. So he provides the kingdom perspective for us, for his disciples. This is how we are to view and use money. So obviously, Jesus' message was needed then. He needed to address his disciples then. They needed this teaching to confront and correct the current View of money, the popular religious notion of what money was for. You know what the popular religious notion of what money was for at that time? Money was a sign of righteousness. Like if you had a lot of money, that was a sign that you were really in God's favor. That goes back to Deuteronomy 28. Like there are blessings for obedience, right? And if you obey God and you obey the law, God will open the treasury of heaven and pour down on you all these riches. And so they had imported that idea directly to the current day. Like, if, if you have a lot of money, you must be really righteous. Like, really in God's favor. Like, really hashtag blessed with a lot of hashtags. Money was a sign. It was a status symbol. Righteousness. I'm a really righteous person if I have a lot of money. You think Jesus is agreeable to that? Do you think that's the view that he buys into? I don't think so. So he's offering a corrective here. Now, do we still need that corrective today? I mean, 2,000 years later, haven't we? Long time in church, haven't we developed the, the true Christian perspective of what money is for? Well, let's put it to the test. Let's see if our... Popular religious notion of wealth has arrived at a place of truth, like doctrinal fidelity. Have we gotten there? Let's use this as a test case because it's local and because it's current. There's a conference that's coming to the Twin Cities next month, huge conference, huge venue, really well known speakers. Including a Heisman Trophy winner. Well known musicians. This is Build as a Christian Event. The main message of the conference is this God intends for Christians to live at a high standard of living. If you're not, then something in your life is wrong. And here's how to correct it and get on the path to prosperity. Here's a quote directly from their website. This is, everything now is a quote. In Deuteronomy 28, 13, God calls us to be the head and not the tail. To be at the top and not the bottom. Unfortunately, a lot of people of faith are not yet experiencing life more abundantly They are not the head, and they are certainly not at the top. When we live this way, we have little impact on this world, and therefore are not effectively fulfilling Jesus' great commission. That's the end of the quotation. I'll just offer a brief summary of what they said. If you don't have money, you will have little impact on this world, and you will be ineffective at fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, think. What is the problem with that logic and that statement? Jesus had no money. Are we prepared to say that he had little impact on this world? And are we prepared to say that he was ineffective at fulfilling his own great commission? This can't be the Christian view of money and wealth. It's impossible. Nothing could be further from the truth. If Jesus came and held his own conference on money, his message wouldn't be, well, if you want to be effective in this life for me, the first thing you need to do is go find more money. Raise your standard of living. Then you can live an impactful life and start fulfilling the Great Commission. Sounds ridiculous when you put it that way, doesn't it? God is not concerned with how much money you have. God is concerned with how you use the money that you have been given. Whatever that amount is, that's called stewardship. The principles that we need regarding wealth are not principles for how to get more. They're principles for how to best use what we've been entrusted with whether we have a lot or whether we have a little. So these principles are applicable for all of us, wherever we are economically. Okay, so what are those principles? There are, are two here. In our passage that we read, we can find two principles for the use of our money. Our use of money should be marked by these two things. Shrewdness, that's verses one through nine. We'll talk about what that means. And it should be marked by faithfulness. Verses 10 through 13. So two things. Christian principles for wealth. Our use of money should be marked by shrewdness and faithfulness. Let's talk about those two things and and then we'll be finished. We'll start with shrewdness. That's first. It's the larger portion, verses 1 through 9. First thing we have to do is figure out what in the world shrewdness means because we don't use that word anymore. Shrewd means prudent, wise, astute, To act with forethought and insight. Shrewdness is the opposite of um, impulsive and rash and foolish. It's the opposite of making decisions that are only good, like in the moment, for immediate pleasure and benefit. Shrewdness is the opposite of that. So to be shrewd is to be, um, if I were to choose my favorite phrase to des- describe it, it would be to be wisely calculating. The manager in this parable is praised for being shrewd. Now let's get into what this parable is teaching and how it should affect our lives. And I think it's okay to admit up front that um, it can be a little bit difficult for us to figure out what's going on. And even if we do know what's going on, it can still be difficult because we're not sure we really like what's going on and have trouble understanding why there could be a commendation here. It seems difficult that this person who Jesus calls the dishonest manager, like Jesus gives him that title. That's verse eight. he calls him the dishonest manager, calls him dishonest. It seems difficult that he is praised and held up as a positive example. That seems backwards and wrong. Also, an additional difficulty is that his shrewdness, the thing that he's praised for, seems to involve a further cheating of his master. He's already been cheating him. That's verses 1 and 2. He's been wasting his possessions. Now he sits down and writes off some of the debt that's owed to his master seemingly cheating him further, and then he gets commended for it, right? It just doesn't seem to make any sense. And Jesus holds up this situation as an example for his disciples. So what's, what's going on here? How do we make heads and tails of this? Here's what I think is the biggest key to understanding what's going on. This, this one point, I think, helps shed light on the whole parable. It's likely, okay, it's not certain, but it's likely that in the parable, when the dishonest manager is telling people that they can lower their bill, they can decrease the amount that they owe, it's likely that what he's doing is decreasing their bill by the same amount as his own commission. Okay, does that make sense? Right? He was going to make a commission on these debts. And it's likely that what he is doing is taking off from their bill the portion that was going to come to him. So his master isn't losing anything in the end. His master that he's working for is still getting everything that was going to come to him. It's just that he's foregoing his own commission in the moment in order to make a friend. A friend who will recognize the favor that's been done to them and be willing to help this manager when he's unemployed, right? So he's giving up what he could have received immediately in order to provide for his own future. And when we understand that, now the praise of the master makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? When we read in verse 8 that the master commended the dishonest manager we understand that he probably hadn't suffered any further loss because of this rewriting of the bills. He probably would have been angry about that, right? But if all that's lost is the commission of the manager, then we can see why his shrewdness would be praised. He's still called the dishonest manager because of what he had done previously, like the wasteful actions told to us previous in verses 1 and 2. He had been wasteful previously, but now he's acted shrewdly to forego what he had in the present to provide for his own future. So now that we have a little better handle on what's happening, let's, let's boil it all down and just ask, okay, what's the point of this parable? What should we take away? Let's say it in, in two steps, okay, a part A and a part B, thinking about what's the point of all this. Part A, the manager leveraged what he had in the present to secure his future. That's the key point of understanding. That's the thing that's praised. The manager leveraged what he had in the present to secure his future. That's a wise thing to do. That is the principle that's commended here. Leveraging what one has in the present to secure one's future. Here's part B. If a a worldly, dishonest scoundrel like this manager had enough wise foresight to act this way, how much more should children of light, followers of Jesus, act with wise foresight with what they have? If this guy can act with wise foresight, how much more should people who know the Lord, people who know wisdom incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ... Remember, Jesus is not teaching us how to get more wealth or that we should go out and get more wealth. He's teaching us how to use the wealth we have. And so the first thing he teaches us is that we should leverage whatever we have presently to secure our future. If dishonest people know how to do this well, shouldn't we excel at this practice? Now, there is one thing further here that speaks to how we're supposed to apply this principle in our lives, and it's in verse 9. Thinking towards application and how we how this should look in our lives, we have to notice what Jesus says in verse nine. He puts his own point of application on this, verse nine. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. He just means money. Okay, it says unrighteous wealth. The word in, in the Greek there is mammon, money, wealth, dollars. Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What does that mean? Well, one thing that it means is that when Jesus teaches us to leverage what we have in the present to secure our future, he's not talking about our financial security. He's not giving us, like, wise financial investment advice, like saying... You know, put your money in these stocks and securities and annuities. He's not talking about wise financial investments. He's not talking about leveraging what we have now to secure our financial future. How do we know? Because the the reward, the payoff that he's talking about is something relational and spiritual. Make friends. That's a relational thing. So that they may welcome you into the eternal dwellings. That's a spiritual thing. So the lesson is leverage what you have presently to secure a blessed relational future in the coming kingdom. Put in plain terms, use your money to invest in relationships. Christ honoring, Christ centered, gospel driven, Great Commission, disciple making relationships. Put in even plainer terms, use your wealth to build the kingdom of God. Of course that's what he's saying. That's the whole theme of the gospel. He couldn't say anything other than that. Then use your wealth to build the eternal kingdom of God. That is a wise leveraging of what you presently have. That is an investment that will pay dividends back millions and millions of times over. Because the kingdom of Christ is eternal. Relationships cannot be valued They are of infinite depth. Use your wealth. Leverage your wealth that way. All right, well, let's try to get really, really practical, all right? Dollars and cents. We all have limited money. We all have spending that we have to do on various things just to do life. We have to to do spending. The question is, in the midst of our spending that we're all doing... Are we doing any investing? Not financial investing. I, I'm going to let someone else deal with that. You can talk to someone else about financial investing. You wouldn't want to talk to me about that anyway. I'm talking about relational kingdom investing. Are you investing anything in building the kingdom? Now, two different kinds of investing. It could be direct investment. Right? Direct investment in kingdom building would look like this. That's when you, without an intermediary, you invest in another person or in other people. Right? You invest your, your time, your money in taking them out to lunch because they don't know Jesus. Taking them out to coffee because they're in crisis and they don't know Jesus. And you're bringing the presence of Christ to them. You're bringing the true knowledge of Christ to them. Right? You're making a direct investment to build the kingdom. It could be indirect investment. That's when there's an intermediary. That's like when you give to a ministry, when you give to a missionary, when you give to a church. That's an indirect investment. That's what happens when you, when you give, for instance, to Prairie Hill Church and thank you for that investment. That's an indirect investment because we take those funds and we use it to, among other things, fund ministry out in the community. Like this wonderful thing that's happening this summer called Praise and Play. Our children's director, Melissa, is leading this initiative. And she and her team are going to a park in Eden Prairie every Wednesday and just encountering whoever is there and inviting children and their parents to come over and listen to the story of Jesus. Have something to eat. Get to know them. Pushing outside the walls of this church. Bringing Jesus to where the people are. It's happening in our student ministry. It's happening in our ministry to Elam Shores just down the street and all kinds of other places. That's an example of indirect investment with the church as an intermediary. And I'm not ashamed. I'm just going to be bold to ask you to ask you to keep investing in that. If you can get behind that mission for Prairie Hill, to exalt Jesus more and more in this community and see him worshiped by more and more people, put him on display to do bigger things and have bigger dreams because of who Jesus is and our desire to bring him to people who need him so badly. Please entrust us with that investment. We will do our best to steward that well. Ideally, you and I would both make direct investments and indirect investments in building the kingdom. Like, that's a, that's a nice balanced portfolio, if we can borrow a term from the financial world. That would be acting shrewdly, to see this dollar in our pocket as something that we can spend right now for immediate pleasure, or we can invest it for eternal purposes. And again, we all have spending we have to do. The question is, am I investing in eternal relationships to build the kingdom. That's the first principle. The second one we won't take as long on, faithfulness. So shrewdness, hopefully we have that down kind of well. At least we've taken a step in the right direction after maybe many years of not really knowing what this parable means. Okay, I've got to leverage what I have presently to secure my future. Okay, that's a relational, spiritual future that I want to have in the kingdom of God. Faithfulness, verses 10 to 13, probably have a much better handle on this one. The major point here that, okay, our, um, our use of our wealth and our money should be marked by um, faithfulness. The, the major point here is to keep us from being deceived. This principle of Stewarding our wealth with faithfulness heads off a a common line of thinking that keeps us from stewarding our wealth well. Here's the common line of thought. You know, um, Matt, I, I hear what you're saying about how we should use our money to invest in God, in the eternal, in the kingdom. I understand that. I hear that just as soon as I have a little bit more available to me. Like, as soon as I feel like I can get some, some financial margin in my life and some more disposable income, then I will start to invest in the kingdom. Jesus heads off that common line of thinking, that line of thinking that says, once I get a little bit more, then I'll start giving to God. He heads that off and he says, uh, no, no. There's a, a fixed principle at work here. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. What Jesus teaches, he intends to be applied in every economic state. If, if you're not investing in building the kingdom while you have little money what makes you think that when you have lots of money that you will be willing to give some of that away to God it's only going to get harder what we want to strive for is faithfulness that means obeying and following Jesus no matter what financial state you're in, or who's watching, or what could happen. That's what it means to be faithful, to follow, no matter what. A faithful person follows and obeys Jesus, no matter what. Little income, large income, anywhere between. There are our two principles, shrewdness. Shrewdness, we leverage what we have presently to secure a relational spiritual future. And faithfulness, we should make those investments in any condition with any amount of wealth that God entrusts to us, big or small. And if we put these principles into practice, we will be free from the tyranny and the slavery of money. And always wanting more. And we will belong to God, both body and soul. We will worship him and not money. Because Jesus has told us that no servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I know I'm talking to a generous church. And for many of you, this is just review. It's just a a reminder and encouragement. I want to offer a a sincere thank you for the investment you're making in this community, through this church, for Jesus' sake. But I also know that there are lots of people here who are just starting out maybe with a—maybe earning an income for the first time. Just maybe first, like, real job out of college or— Getting some significant dollars in their account for the first time. And I just want to encourage you, as a, a brother in Christ, to put these things into practice now, while you're young, rather than try and start later when you're making more money. The best way to ensure that you'll be faithful later is to be faithful now. To be a Christian is not to have a lot of money and a lot of impact because of your wealth. To be a Christian is to be found faithful to Jesus with whatever he's entrusted to you. Amen. Father, uh, thank you for this wonderful Jesus and his teaching. We know that it's good for us that when he opens his mouth and speaks, he intends to save. Jesus saves from the idolatry and the tyranny of money. And as hard as these things might be to do and as much as money might have a grip um, on our heart and on our mind, we know that putting these things into practice is actually freedom and so good. It's a saving word from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank you. We thank you um, for the word today and pray for the courage and faithfulness to put these things into practice for Jesus' sake. Amen.